I think many of us have been spending this past week with family, eating lots of food, maybe already listening to Christmas music, being grateful to the Lord for his kindness in our life. And that's what we've been doing with our family, decorating the Christmas tree, listening to Frank Sinatra, the oldies, (laughs) building with blocks. And during this time is also a time when things slow down and we get to spend a lot more time indoors. And one of the things that kids really love doing is building puzzles. Now, if you're an expert, you get the 1,000-piece puzzles. But uh, if you're about medium, you get the 500-piece. But we usually love to hang out with the 50 to 100-piece puzzles because that is what we can do at this time. And when you start with a puzzle, what's most interesting is you put the box right before you and you look at the box and you have all these pieces right in front of you, but you have no clue how they fit together. And one by one, you start putting the puzzle pieces together. When your kids are around you, and I remember specifically... Ezra, a few years ago, when we were putting a puzzle piece together, especially one that they really enjoyed, which was the 50 states, he put, like, he put two pieces together and he put two more and they fit and said, Dad, this is exactly what it says on the picture. This is so exciting. And I looked at him and I was like, yep, son, that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> These two pieces fit. You know, and so as we're looking at the Gospel of John, as we're looking at the Old Testament and New Testament, what we see is that in the Old Testament, we find these puzzle pieces that help to illustrate the bigger picture of uh, who Christ is and what he did to come uh, on this earth and what he came to accomplish. And so in our story this morning, there were already two quotes from the Old Testament that were pointing us to the fulfillment of what Christ came to accomplish. Really a shadow of the Old Testament pointing to the reality who is Christ. And as we're looking at the Gospel of John, this is John's whole point, is he is seeking to present Jesus Christ as Lord, as God himself, and as Savior. And there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, and then there's seven signs. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the signs that Jesus uses to show that he is the Son of God. As we look at the Bible... We have to understand that just like we have puzzle pieces that fit together, there is a divine author who wrote all scripture. 66 books with many authors over, over thousands of years, but one storyline, which is what we call a meta-narrative. It is one big story beginning with creation and then man failing, leading to the fall, a very long story of redemption from Genesis 3 to the coming of Christ, and then consummation is... Uh, the answering the question, what are we going to do for eternity? And so Jesus is going to fulfill something that was promised long ago here in chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Now, last week, we studied John 1, and we learned Jesus' willingness to become flesh, to incarnate, to present God to us, as we recall, who is full of grace and truth. And today in our passage, we see Jesus is doing something else. He already presented to us who the Father is. Today, he is going to teach us to restore, how he's going to restore worship. And there's two Old Testament quotes that I want to turn your attention to here in our passage once again. In verse 16, it says, Jesus uses an Old Testament quote, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of trade. And in verse 17, his disciples remember this other quote from the Old Testament. Zeal for your house will consume me. Now, As we're looking at this passage, we have to ask ourselves the question, 
why does Jesus need to restore worship? Why is Jesus speaking about the body of his temple and creating a new temple? What is he speaking about here? Well, we see that by this time, worship of God was measured merely by external standards. In another book, in Matthew, Jesus tells the Pharisees or speaks about them saying, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They tithe from the herb garden, pray in the corners of the streets, but they do not love the Lord. Worship became something that was merely external, measurable, visible to the public, but it was missing the greatest element, which was the heart of the person and true love for the Lord. We also see that worship is important or why Jesus needs to restore worship because it is a serious matter. This is why God created us. We read in Isaiah, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, whom I created for myself, who will worship me. It became, began with Cain and Abel, and that first offering. It continued with Abraham, then Moses and the people of Israel. We read in Leviticus the qualifications for the animals. Continued through the Pentateuch, and ultimately we see that God desires for his people to worship him in a specific way. And now Christ is coming on the scene, showing us what true worship looks like. Jesus is is bringing something new. He's bringing something better that is not hindered by location, something that is not external. And so Jesus, in this second sign, the first sign being the water turning into wine, the previous passage, the second sign now, he's going to restore something that was being done improperly because he is zealous for the right worship of the Father. Now, if we're speaking about worship, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is worship? The the English word worship comes from worth-ship, which literally means acknowledgement of worth. You see something something that is of worth and you acknowledge that it is worthy. Today, in our modern day vernacular, I would say that we have worshipers everywhere. And today, we call them fans or followers. Our culture is consumed with worship. We worship football teams and basketball teams and celebrities. We worship everything under the sun. And so these people, they buy the brands. They post the pictures of their favorite athletes on the wall. They follow them on Instagram. They speak about them. They literally worship. They prize this thing and it consumes their life. This is what C.S. Lewis spoke of many decades ago when he said, we praise what we prize. We praise what we prize. When we prize anything of value, we praise that object. Let me give you a few examples. Maybe you've said this to your wife, about your wife to somebody else. Look at my wife. Doesn't she cook so well? Or did you see my kids score that goal? Maybe if you've been in Hawaii, you would tell your friends, you have to see that sunset from Kanapali Beach in Maui? Or have you tasted my medium-rare seared filet mignon? (laughs) And of course, we have to get a a basketball line in here. Did you see my Warriors eliminate the Celtics in the finals? (laughs) We praise what we prize, what we deem worthy. Even Elon Musk, when he was interviewed, he actually alluded to C.S. Lewis without even knowing it. He said this about Tesla. 
He said, we don't advertise. People must love their Tesla. They will then talk about it. Word of mouth. And that's what Apple did. You see, we praise what we prize, and when we, when we prize that which we see as worthy in our life, whether it be a car, a phone, or any kind of service or a person. Now, bringing that in relation to the church, we already see a hint through this that worship is not external. Worship is not a gathering. It is not essentially a song service or sitting under preaching. It can include that. Worship is not essentially any kind of outform act. Outward act. As you look on the screen, follow along with me as I read a quote from John Piper when he speaks about worship. He says this, Worship is essentially an inner stirring of the heart to treasure God above all the treasures of the world, a valuing of God above all else that is valuable, a loving of God above all else that is lovely, a savoring of God above all else that is sweet, an admiring of, of God above all else that is admirable, a fearing of God above all else that is fearful, a respecting of God above all else that is respectable, prizing of God above all else that is precious. And he closes by saying, and then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. And if we can include Bob Coughlin, who we would call a modern worship leader for music specifically, because worship is more than just music, he says this, Christian worship is the response of God's redeemed people to his self-revelation that exalts God's glory in Christ in our minds, affections, and wills in the power of the Spirit. So we see this internal to external process of the heart leading to the hands and this is exactly what the Jews had missed when we get to John chapter 2. This is why Jesus needs to restore it, because it is merely external. If you don't have the heart, then worship simply becomes lip service. It becomes duties. It becomes obligations. And at times, we might find ourselves lackluster in our worship. Another way to put it, sometimes it feels like our head and our heart are a million miles away from one another. Between our head and heart, between what we know and what we enjoy, between the truth and then genuine heartfelt adoration of God. And maybe you've been there at one point in your life or another, or maybe you are there this morning. Maybe you're noticing that it is a continual battle, <laughs> the battle for the affections of your heart to love the Lord your God. Well, we're not the first to experience such things. And thank God for his word that reveals how we are to fix these areas of our life. And so as you are listening this morning, I want to, to challenge you to assess your worship in light of God's revealed truth. Assess your worship in light of God's revealed truth. And, and really our proposition is about Jesus, born to restore worship, Christ's zeal for the Father's glory. So as we see Christ's zeal for the Father's glory and how he was born to restore worship, I want you to ask this question or think about this idea of assessing your worship in light of God's revealed truth. So the very first thing that we see of how Christ is going to restore worship is found in verses 13 to 17. And it is, it is in Jesus cleansing the temple. So the first thing we see is purity in worship. Purity in worship. And our narrative begins in verse 13 with the Passover, and Jesus going up to Jerusalem. 
Now, Jerusalem was uh, not higher elevation than Galilee, but you would say you're going up just like you are going up to Sacramento or going down to LA. Going up was what people did, and it was the capital sit. It was the capital city. Now, the reason why Jesus is going there is given to us in the first words: the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus, like a typical Jew who goes up to Jerusalem to the Passover feast, which was initiated in Exodus 12. Why? For the people to remember, just like we're going to remember today, how God brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's literally called the Passover because God passed over those who had the blood on the doorposts. And this was a huge festival. At this time, we know that Jerusalem would grow up to 10x in population. So we got people coming from all over the place, coming to worship God during the Passover. Everybody would bring some kind of animal to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, if you couldn't buy oxen or sheep, you would sacrifice a pigeon. And so imagine this scene in verse 14. Business, busyness of the crowds, the hustle and bustle of things. And here comes Jesus Walking into the temple, a place that's supposed to be a place of worship, and what does he find? All this commotion, various, uh, various services inside the, inside the temple that were sold. Like, it was a modern-day flea market. The place where God was to be worshipped as a place was turned into a place of business. The goods that were being sold there, oxen, sheep, and pigeons. Now, if you're wondering why they were sold inside of the temple, it was because people would bring these animals to sacrifice to the Lord during the Passover. And so this was your ancient form of Amazon Prime. You could just pick it up right there, instant delivery, and be able to sacrifice. Instead of lugging your cattle and sheep and doves for the service, you just showed up and bought them there. It was convenient and easy. And because it was convenient and easy, some people realized that you could make a lot of money on this. And so... These animals would be sold for two, three, five X more than what they would really cost, the normal price. But it's really worth it because you're sacrificing to God. Not only was it somewhat of an amusement park where everything is overpriced, but there was an entrance fee. And the entrance fee was called the temple tax. And it was a fee that started when you were 20 years old. And there'd be money changers that were sitting at the entrance of the temple because people came from all over the Roman Empire with all their various coins, but they had to pay interior coinage because the silver of the coin was very pure. And so imagine what kind of exchange rate you would get showing up trying to pay to enter into the temple. So you have all of this that is going on, all of this what we call worldly things, the business making inside of the temple. And now imagine Jesus. The one we studied last week in John 1, he's at the right hand of the Father. He is God himself. He comes incarnate to reveal God who is full of grace and truth. He's ushering in a new era. He's the one who was living with the myriads of angels that were proclaiming how he is holy, a place where there's purity of worship and genuine adoration. And here comes Jesus to the temple of God to be to, to be a place of right worship, and he sees this ugly scene. Instead of worship, there is profit. Instead of worship, there's commotion. Instead of worship, there is greed. There is abuse of people and manipulating people instead of worship. And you think Jesus would just speak and silence everyone like the waves? 
Maybe he'd go send his disciples to each of the booths and have his disciples talk to the money changers and those selling the pigeons and maybe figure out a way to get them all out. But very interestingly, we read in verse 15, making a whip of cords. Making a whip of cords. When's the last time you had this anger, this zeal that caused you to just act because you saw some kind of injustice? This is what we see here. He made a whip, of, made a whip out of cords. So he had to put it together. And he drove them all out with the sheep and the oxen. And you can imagine this wasn't easy to do. You see all the coins falling to the ground, making noise, the tables that are being overturned, the oxen and the sheep that are making noises. All this commotion is happening. And then he tells those who are selling the pigeons to take these things away. Jesus is clearing house. Jesus is cleaning and purifying something before he's going to institute something new. He has to get rid of the old. He is zealous that God is worshipped rightly. And then Jesus gives us the reason why he is doing this. He doesn't condemn the traitors that they're ripping people off, but he's simply making a point that such things should not be happening in the house of God. The place of worship was not to be a pike place in Seattle or your local farmer's market or Pier 39. The place of worship was where worship should be happening. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Jesus fulfilling Old Testament writings. We've already alluded to that in the beginning, but in Zechariah 14, 21, we read that on that day, there will no longer be a merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty. Equally, John may also be alluding to Malachi 3, 1, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Jesus is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies that are made about him. Yes, we know the prophecies and the promises about his coming, and he's going to be the baby in the manger. We know these other promises, but here specifically the prophecy is about restoring worship. He was born to restore worship, and this sounds very familiar already, does it not? Remember how the book of Samuel begins? When Israel is in a desolate place in a spiritual wilderness, and who is born to restore worship? It's Samuel. And Samuel is the one who's going to lead, us, lead God's people back to worshiping the Lord properly. This is just a representation. Similar to even Ezra, which we studied in our last book, desolate worship, and then it is restored. The issue here was that the worship of God was watched over by men who desired to exercise authority and get rich instead of lead people to God. They wanted to exercise authority and get rich instead of lead people to God. Now, does that not sound very familiar to today? I mean, think about all various denominations, even under the Christian umbrella, where people exercise their authority, and secondly, they seek to get rich with give, 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 instead of leading people to God, which was the purpose of the temple. Really, this temple and this picture that Jesus walks into is really just a spiritual representation of what is going on in the nation of Israel. 
the focus moved from worship of God to routine things, to religion, to external things without the substance. Now look at the reaction of the disciples in verse 17. I can imagine the disciples, their jaws are dropped. They're like, uh, we just started following Jesus. He came into the temple. He's at the place where it's like the meeting place where everyone comes. You got the Pharisees and the, and the leaders of the city there. And all of a sudden, Jesus is with his whip driving everybody out. And they're just standing there like, what just happened? Like, what's going what's gonna, to, how are we going to move on from this? And we see here, though, that the disciples knew something of the Old Testament. Because all of a sudden, they remember the word of God that's written in Psalm 69, verse 9, which says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Zeal for your house, and another word for consume, has eaten me up. Ah, it's so within me. I really want God to be worshipped properly. Now, originally, Psalm 69 is a psalm that David was writing, and it was speaking about David attracting opposition from his enemies because he was zealous for God's worship. Being zealous put him into a place of unpleasant position with his enemies. We would say that David is a Jesus freak. And we see people like that today who are put into unpleasant situations because they care more about the glory of God than they care about the glory of men. And we've studied through Acts, and we saw that many times the disciples, or now the apostles, would get in trouble with authorities because they cared about the glory of God more than about the glory of man. And we see that this is what is going to happen to Jesus because he wants God the Father to be worshipped rightly. But it's interesting, there's a tense change from Psalm 69 to John chapter 2. In Psalm 69, it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. But here in John 2, it says, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house, in other words, zeal for your house will eat me up. It will overtake me. Ultimately, zeal for your house, Jesus is speaking about the future and speaking about his death. Zeal for your house is going to kill me. Isn't that what happened? What happens throughout the gospel of John as Jesus begins to reveal more and more that he is the son of God? We get to a place in John chapter 8, he says, I am the I am. And then the Pharisees take up stones to try to stone him and kill him. And then ultimately they plot to murder him. Jesus is David's greater son. And so these words in the future, they make sense. Throughout the gospel of John, we see that the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come until the hour does come. He's going to be raised from the dead, but he's going to be raised because he's first going to be killed. And obviously, the, te the, the, the temple he is speaking about here is the temple of his body. And so the rest of it, really, the book of John displays that he is the son of God, the mediatory substitutionary sacrifice to restore worship. Now, before we get into the next verses, we're thinking about the purity of worship. I want us to reflect in our own life. Thinking of your own life, I want to ask you a couple questions. Has your focus moved from heartfelt adoration to simply going through the motions? Focusing on the external, like, I must do this, versus uh, the change of heart, which says, I get to do this. I get to serve God's people. I get to come to church on Sunday. I get to behold the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Christ through his word. 
Do you guard your heart so that you don't worship him out of duty or out of a dull routine? Second, are you, are you zealous? Do you have a strong desire for God to be worshipped greatly in your home and in your life? The definition of zeal is this, an intense, positive interest in something marked by a sense of dedication. Intense, positive interest in something that's marked by a dedication. You know when you are zealous for sports with the kids? There's a lot of dedication. Got to go to sports games on the weekends. Got to take them to practice in the midweek. That's dedication. Dedication in your workplace. If you want to get that move up the ladder, staying late, doing things that you're not necessarily asked to do, you are zealous for that. The point of the temple was to bring people to God. And the point of Christianity is to bring people to the Lord through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Is this what you're thinking about when you're coming to church on Sunday morning? Or is this what you're thinking about when you're coming here this morning? That you're going to meet God here mediated through his presence and his people? Or do you show up merely out of duty, merely because it's Sunday and we're gathering together? Christ redeemed us for himself to be a people who have a vibrant relationship with this, with him. And you know, if there is no Christ, if there is no gospel, if there is no relationship, if you think about all the other religions, Catholics, Mormons, Islam, any other man-made religion, what would be any different from our life if we do not have that vital relationship with the Lord? I think uh, there's a quote that could help us to explain what worship looks like in our daily life. And John Piper writes this. He says, the essence of worship is not external, localized acts, but inner Godward experiences that come out primarily in church services, though they're important, but primarily in our daily expressions of allegiance to God. This is what we spoke about when we spoke about zeal, right? In your sex life, in the way you handle your money or keep your marriage vows or speak up for Christ. This is what worship looks like. Your expressions of allegiance to God in daily living. Maybe I want to bring some of you back to, to history. For some, it's ancient history. For some, it's recent history. For some, it's just history. But remember the day that you were dating your spouse? Remember the times when you were really zealous for them? When you were pursuing them with great energy and enthusiasm? What we see here, this is the kind of zeal that God, that Jesus has for worship. Remember the time when you had found a great hobby that you started pursuing with great energy and enthusiasm? Do likewise in your pursuit of God. Now, as Jesus just did what he did, naturally, in verse 18, we see that Jews ask him a question. And this is natural for them because they are the temple police. They are the legal authorities. And Jesus doing this action prompts them to ask them, ask him a question. And the question is, give us a sign. And so secondly, we see in our passage here the placements of worship. So not only the purity of worship, but the placements of worship, and specifically Jesus replacing the temple. Jesus replacing the temple. We've already alluded to it a little bit because the temple that Jesus was speaking that is going to speak about is his body. But when we think about replacement, we replace a lot of things in our life. We replace filters, 
during the, in our heaters, we replace uh, milk when it goes bad. We replace our refrigerator needs. I think about many years ago when I got my first iPhone, and I recall that the screen was probably one and a half inches big, and it was this hunky big old Nokia phone that was like a chimney brick. I mean, anytime you threw it, it dropped, you know, were never worried about it breaking. And when I got it, there were still buttons on it because it was a phone and it was actually used to make phone calls. And I remember you would open the settings, you have 10 options, and one of those options was the internet. But you would never dare go on the internet because then your dad would be talking to you about the phone bill. You were limited in your conversations. You tried to fit everything into 150 characters. And sometimes your friends wouldn't get the message. You made you sure you didn't talk to a lot because with your family plan, you had like 1,500 minutes to share. So you would often hear people say, I got to go. I can't talk long. Sometimes you would play catch with the phone. And guess what? The screen never, ever cracked. You could drop it from your nightstand, it would survive, or any other place. Now, some of you remember those days, and others of you don't. We would probably describe those days as archaic. Limits on texts and calling, a one-and-a-half-inch screen, right? With companies, though, more and more companies grew the unlimited plan for everything, no restrictions. In 2007, Apple introduced the iPhone, and today you can't even buy some of the cheapest phones without it being a touch, a touch screen, browsing the internet or downloading the apps. It literally inaugurated a new era. And the point is this with the introduction of the new, the old goes away. With the introduction of the new, the old goes away. And by the way, we're on point two on the PowerPoint. There we go. Thank you. Something better and more glorious has appeared on the scene. During this fall, there have been many debuts of new phones coming out, and why do we want to switch? Why do we want to get the iPhone 15? Because something new was revealed that you didn't know before, and it completely changed your thinking, it changed your actions. And so although it's uncommon for people to use Nokia bricks, some people still do, we would think that they are weird. With the introduction of such new technology, why would they limit themselves on text messages or minutes in the phone calls? Why would they not browse the internet and ask Google for an answer to every single one of their questions? Why would they not use the camera on the phone but lug around a DSLR? You see, this is very similar to the Christian life and what Jesus is doing here in verses 18 to 22. He is restoring and he is renewing and he's bringing in a new era of what worship is going to look like. And that worship is not going to be worship in a localized place, on a certain mountain, in a certain temple, at a certain location, but it's going to be worship that is spirit and truth. Christ comes with a new covenant that is greater than the old Mosaic law. And so he has completely then transformed us. You see, it'd be weird that for us as Christians to behold the glory of God, to settle for lesser things or to worship the created things that we see all around us today, to settle for temporary joys or satisfaction instead of beholding the glory of Christ. And so, once again, the Jews ask Jesus a question, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Who are you, in other words, that you show up to our temple, guns blazing, cleaning house? They're really just asking for his credentials. Yet Jesus gives them an answer that is also the solution to the problem of their hearts. 
Now, the Jews say something that's very interesting to him. Their, their question and their question, what sign do you show us for doing these things, reveals something about their own heart. It reveals that they don't care about worship as much as they care about authority. Who are you? And this is what happens in legalistic settings. People care more about authority, who you are, rather than the truth, what you say. Second, if Jesus was really, really a hooligan, we, would, we, we could maybe say that, they would have just sent him out with the proper recourse. But the fact that they ask him for a sign shows that they're suspicious that he could be someone not so typical. You know, if they really had eyes to see, they would have seen that the cleansing of the temple was a sign, that the cleansing of the temple was somewhat of a judgment on them for how they've been worshiping the Lord. And we see that Jesus' answer is not typical. He didn't say, were you there at the wedding the other day? I made water to wine. He didn't call them whitewashed tombs or say, I know your double-mindedness. Jesus gives a peculiar answer. That's really interesting. When you study the Bible, Jesus' answers are always atypical. They're never what you would expect. You would expect something very simple, like, what sign do you show us for these things? And then Jesus would say, well, I am the I am. I just turned water into wine, and I'm, you know, the God had come incarnate, and you're going to see greater signs than these. That's not what Jesus does. I think of a few examples when Jesus speaks with his disciples. You know, when Andrew and Peter start following Jesus, instead of saying how great it is that they're following me, Jesus says, what are you seeking? Instead of Jesus saying, sure, they're out of wine, I'll help, he's like, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> Jesus always gives odd answers because he is holy, he's separate, he's different. And here Jesus gives an odd answer. He says something that he knows they will not understand. He says this, destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. Confusion all over their heads. What? How do, what do you mean? Destroy the temple? So you're telling us to destroy it and you're going to raise it up? They say, it says, their reaction is that it took us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, obviously, John gives us the answer in verse 21, what Jesus was speaking about. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, this is a, a huge sign. Jesus is revealing something about worship. That worship is no longer going to happen in a place, but in spirit and truth. Genuine worship is going to happen through Jesus Christ, through the blood sacrifice on the cross. It's going to come to a place where the time has come. Now, the Jews completely missed what he was saying. It was over their head. And the reason why, we got to ask our questions, why do they keep misunderstanding this when they come to Jesus? Because they're purely thinking about the physical more than the spiritual. They're often thinking about the physical and they're missing the spiritual. You see, even in, our next, in the next chapter in John 3, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. He says, you need to be born again. He's a teacher of the law, of the Torah. He should know the Old Testament, the, the, the covenants that are supposed to come, the prophecies. And he says, am I supposed to go back to my mother's womb and be born again? He can't figure it out because he keeps thinking in physical terms because worship by that time has just become a physical thing, external. John gives us the explanation of what Jesus means here. But let's dive deeper into what Jesus is saying when he says that destroy this temple and that his body is the temple. 
You see, Jesus' body is the place where the Word became flesh. In the upper room in, in John 13, he says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So Jesus is saying, I am the representation of the Father. Now I want to remind us again that the purpose of the temple was a place where God and man would meet. This is why some people say that the first temple was eaten. Adam and Eve could communicate directly with God because they were sinless. They didn't need a mediator. They didn't need a sacrifice to bring them near to God to worship the Lord. And now, after the brokenness, as we remember the the fall leading to the redemption, God is going to dwell with his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to be the ultimate sacrifice, Emmanuel, God with us. In the temple of of his body, he's going to be the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and finally and fully restores worship with God's people. These are the the puzzle pieces that should be connecting as we're reading this passage. Christ clearing out the temple, purifying it, then he's, he's replacing the place of worship by saying, now I am the one. And for us as believers, this really has glorious implications Jesus is the final and better meeting point between God and man. We have direct, incessant um, access to the Father. And now our worship can be more genuine and pure. It's not external rituals and sacrifices, but an internal heart change, and this is why our worship is pleasing to the Lord. Now, as John is writing this much later in his life, He has this detail in verse 22 showing his own humility. He says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Enough humility to share. You know, we we didn't really understand what he was saying, but when he was raised, they remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture. In their time of brokenness, In their time when they were desperate and they were at a loss that their Savior was crucified, then he was raised, they remembered what Jesus said. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Christ is fulfilling these prophecies one by one, one puzzle piece at a time, displaying the fuller and the larger picture in why he came on earth. He was born to restore worship. He was born to reveal God to us. And I want to remind us this morning that our worship is acceptable to the Father because of Christ. The most pleasant thing in our life to to God is really to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates. And what God loves is His Son, Jesus Christ to adore His Son, Jesus Christ. The object of His love for all eternity has been His Son, Jesus Christ. And now the outpouring of that love, Christ became incarnate. And the greatest thing that we get to experience is that relationship with Christ, not at any location, but can be done at any time. You can worship at Jesus at 5 in the morning when you're reading His Word. Some of you this morning wake up at 5. You can worship Jesus by yourself with a guitar on a hill. You can worship Jesus by adoring the wonderful waves crashing by the edge of the sea. You can worship him by loving people throughout the week. You can worship him by prizing him highly in your life and getting rid of lesser things. You see, Luther once said that whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that really is your God. 
Piper says you're always in a temple, so always worship. Worship is this lifestyle. And so as we, as we come to a close, we see Christ who was born to restore worship. We see his zeal for the Father's glory. And Christ is, is concerned with a couple things. Number one, the purity of worship and also the placement of worship. Now, we've heard a lot this morning, a lot of information, a lot of backstory about what is going on in our, in our verses here in the cleansing of the temple and Jesus fulfilling prophecies. I want to ask you first, is your worship pure and genuine? Is your worship pure and genuine? Like, do, you, do you find yourself on an average day feeling that you, you have to do this or feeling that you get to do this? You see, the more that we behold the glory and the beauty of Christ, the less we say, I have to, and the more we say, oh, I would love to. The more we would say, I get to, because we're driven by a love for the Lord. How far this morning is that distance from your head and your heart? Second, do you, do you worship Jesus at all times? Remember, worship is, is not a Sunday morning service. It's not music and singing. Worship is our life. We present our lives as a living sacrifice, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. But worship begins by acknowledging the beauty and the glory of Christ, of God, submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. And then in submission, we live our lives in such a way where we are honoring the Lord in our speech and in our actions, that we are serving Him in the church, in different ministries. We're serving Him by loving people who are in the body. That is worship. If you didn't know, the Old Testament term for, for worship and and a service is the exact same word. The same word work in Genesis is the word worship in the tabernacle. The people in Genesis 2, when God said work and keep to Adam, he, tells, he uses the same word when he tells the Levites to worship in the temple. Our life is a life of worship. The way we do it, though, is by, as we began, praising what we prize. We prize Christ, we behold him. And that overflows in the way that we do life. It overflows in the decisions we make on a daily basis, in the way that we parent our kids and we love our spouses. We show that we prize Christ in the fact that we, we stay true to his word and we try to live according to his word because we know that it is good and perfect. Now, many of us are letting the revealed truth of God's word lead us to this kind of submission and ultimately worship. But what if you're not feeling it? What if this morning you're just walking with the Lord, you're going through the motions, and you kind of feel like this illustration here of, I'm just part of the people in the temple. What if you're at a place where you're at church and worship begins? There's no awe of God. There's no love for Him. Or maybe you're at home on a weekday and you open the Bible and just another black words on white pages. What you, should you do? Should you just go through the motions and wait for your adoration and love for God to grow? You see, Jesus taught us to worship in spirit and in truth. True worship involves both of those. God is spirit in John 4, it says, and those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. So we must worship in truth, which means we worship the true God revealed in Christ. That's truth. What about spirit, though? What does it mean to worship in spirit? Some might say it's the Holy Spirit. But when we look at John's use of the word spirit, spirit refers to feelings and emotions. In John 13, Jesus says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled, where? In his spirit. We see John 3, 6, that spirit refers to something supernaturally produced. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is spirit. So putting these things together, worshiping in spirit means worshiping with spirit-given feelings, Holy Spirit-given feelings and emotions, like joyful praise, awestruck wonder, sorrow for sin, and longings for God. To worship in spirit and truth encompasses your whole person. This is what Edwards was speaking about for so much, and John Piper picked up on it and he continued into today, that worship is not merely cerebral. It includes the passions of the heart. That is how God created us. Now, if our hearts are feeling far from God, what else can we do? Well, luckily, we're not the first ones to experience this. In Psalm 40, we see David. David's heart was not full of worship, full feelings. It was actually quite the contrary. He felt like he was in a pit of destruction, stuck in a miry clay, but then God lifts him up out of it. So what did David do from being stuck in a miry clay to singing praises to God? In verse 1 of chapter 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? It means a few things, and I'll just list them out. The first is to, to look to Jesus expectantly. Don't focus on our lifeless heart. Look to Christ with faith, trusting him to meet you, to help you, and to change you. You look to him expectantly. Say, Lord, I know that you can do this. I feel like my heart and my head are a million miles away, but I know that you can change that. You can reveal yourself to me that I would be drawn to the beauty of who you are. Second, pray and ask him to help you worship. We got to be all honest with the dullness of our heart. We have to say, Lord, right now, I just would rather watch this Netflix series. Lord, I'd rather just go and do this other thing than spend time in communion with you. We got to confess our sin, but we also can be assured of forgiveness based on the finished work of Christ. Third, we can set your heart on the truth of who God is as revealed in Christ. See, when we set our hearts on the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the question is, how will that keep our heart dull and cold? That cannot. We cannot look into the blazing sun and not be moved by it. We cannot be looking at the most beautiful thing in all of human history, the person of Jesus Christ, and walk away not moved by that. So we, we focus prayerfully and relentlessly on the truth of Christ through the songs and the prayers and the scriptures. And then we continue these above steps that I just mentioned patiently, and we wait for the Lord to stir in us these affections for him, spirit-stirred affections for Christ. And so what, is, what does God promise if we would do that, if we wait for him? He says that when we seek him, we'll find him. When we press on to know the Lord, he'll come to us like a spring brain. We read that when we come to Jesus, in John 6, our hunger and our thirst are going to be satisfied. And this is what Christ promises for all of us. And so may the Lord help us in this, to live lives of pure worship and to live lives continually worshiping because Christ has come to restore worship. He was born to restore worship. And he desires for us to continue to worship in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you for your word, and we're grateful for just this passage. And Jesus, we thank you that you took on this mission to, to restore worship, to reveal the Father, to, to help us to live lives that are not aimless and pointless, 
but to live lives of worship, worship in you, to see you as worthy. And as we see your worthiness, it overflows in the way that we live our life, in the way that we speak. And so we lean on you, Lord, because we know that this work is not something that we can accomplish on our own. This is a work that you must do by your power, but it's also that which we strive for and we strive towards. And we work hard to behold the beauty and glory in your word, and we, we work hard to do the things that you call us to do because we know that through them, through all that, we find our best good, and through that you get glorified. So help us. We seek your face. Amen.